Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. We're going to read the Bible now, and we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at, I'm going to read chapters 2, 1 to 4, but Ross is going to come up and talk to us in a moment about a little bit more than that, but he can explain that to you in a moment. So if you have your Bibles there, you can open it up to Philippians chapter 2, or it will be on the screen behind me as well. We pick it up from verse 1. It says this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others." Good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks, Ben, for that. And we are going to spend a little bit of time thinking about that passage and a little bit more. What does it mean for those people that time and for us today? I want to pray now that God might use this time to speak to us through his word, particularly on some big things about uh, our identity and who we are in him. Please join me. Dear Father God, just thank you for the opportunity now we can gather here in one place, in one building as one people. But we thank you that we can... Uh, know that we can meet with you as you promise when we open your word and we gather together. But we do pray that you'd open our hearts so we can hear you clearly. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes you, you? See, I was asked to answer this question, to introduce myself about a month or so ago. Uh, our staff team went down to the Reach Australia conference and a part of that I was leading one of the, I was emceeing one of the, the days there and they asked me to write a blurb about myself, 200 words to introduce yourself. What makes you, you? So I found that really challenging. You start to write, oh yeah, I'm ex-tradie, I used to be a mechanic, uh, pastor of a church, then starting to think through what are other people, they usually talk about their hobbies, oh yeah, I love my gardening, got this tropical garden out the back, and I start writing along like this, and then I go, oh actually, I'm, mar- I'm married, I've got a family, I should, probably should add that, and in fact, if Kim saw that tacked on the end, she probably go, what about just tacked, I probably should put that first, and what do I say about them? They're not just, oh, I'm married, but, um, you know, married, like kids, uh, son-in-law, uh, granddad, you know, I should rattle off all that, put it at the start. But if I'm going to put down what's really important, particularly this is a Christian conference, right, I should put a follower of Jesus. I probably should put that first because that's who I am. That's what makes me, me. But then I started reading what other people are writing and then saw, yeah, this is a Christian conference and that, that bit of pride inside go, I actually want to show you who I am but actually, I, I don't want to show you everything. I don't want to say I'm a middle-aged, white, fat guy. Yeah, I'm not going to put that in. But I want to make it sound, I want to have my identity and to be impressive. So then I start to write. I probably overthought it a bit. I'm a follower of Jesus. My beautiful and awesome and amazing Lord and Saviour. I think this is sounding a bit better, isn't it? Who has blessed me. 
uh, saved me from death to life. He has richly blessed me with a beautiful wife, two awesome kids, an amazing son-in-law, the most incredible granddaughter. I mean, this sounds impressive, you've got to admit. And at least I thought it was impressive. And I am super blessed to have an amazing garden in the backyard, a tropical garden that I love dearly. It's like, is this who I am? I, this is who I am, but I want you to see who I am. But it's a, I found it a really hard and challenging question. 200 words, introduce yourself. What would you say? Who you are? What's your identity? What makes you you? And what's the big things and little things? What are the things that you really want to show that are important to you? And what are the little things that just add to your character? What, how would you describe yourself? See, without us realising if the way we portray ourselves, if we don't do that, if we don't think this through, actually, without us realising the world's already doing that to us, everyone else is putting you in a pigeonhole and putting you, characterising you in different ways of who they see you. And it's interesting how that has changed over the years. See, the categories used to be, what's your name? Where do you live? What do you do? Are you married or family? Just some basic questions like that. It's been like that for many years. But what makes you, you, has changed. Your identity has changed to things like, what's your skin colour? What's your gender? Because that's not always obvious. Uh, are you non-gender? There's lots of options. What's your sexual preferences? How do you live that out? That's become how people describe themselves or how see you, you as you. And it's amazing that we think that this is, it feels like a new phenomena. That in recent years, there's all these groups that make these the primary thing. This is their identity about who they are, what makes them, them. But yet, even in Jesus' time, even in the times of the Bible, in the first century AD when Jesus was around in the early church, in the Roman uh, in the Roman Empire, their culture of identity and social status and who you were, who you were, is even more important, was even more important than it is today. They made a bigger thing about identity than we do even now. So when we wonder, well, how should we view ourselves? What makes me, me? What are my big things and what are my not so important things? How does that all work? It's not a new thing, it's not a new challenge, but actually, God spoke into that space 2,000 years ago. So this morning, we're going to look at this current issue, but what does God say about it? What was God speaking into? What was God doing in people's lives 2,000 years ago? And I think you'll find it's going to impact and challenge us how we see our identity, but it's also going to see how this is not a new thing, but actually God's interested in who you are, very interested in who you are. So we're going to meet three people from the town of Philippi. So we read a passage from Philippians. So that was a letter that was written to this Philippian church. Now we're going to meet a lady called Lydia, a slave girl and uh, a Roman soldier. These people that we, met, uh, that we meet in the book of Acts when P the Apostle Paul goes to Philippi to, to introduce people to Jesus and start off the church, let's go and see what sort of people make up this church and how has Jesus impacted their identity and how that flows out into the life, uh, to their lives, church and otherwise. So the first person we meet 
And this is about Jesus challenging the, their society's idea of identity. And we meet uh, a lady, Lydia. But as we pick it up, it's Acts chapter 16, but it's all on the screen, uh, t- talking about Paul and his team of followers uh, travel to Philippi. And it, it mentions it's a Roman colony. Now, it's helpful for us to get the setting right. We have Rome, the centre of the Roman Empire. This was the world, the centre of the world in the first century. Everything come out of Rome. Philippi was nicknamed Little Rome because it was so Roman, even though it wasn't near Rome, it was an outlying town, uh, city, that they called it Little Rome because a lot of times the the soldiers in the army, because that's what makes up Rome, there's order, there's structure, there's status, and a lot of that is the power and might of that seen through their army. A lot of the soldiers back then didn't get paid a lot of money. The reward was, if you lived long enough to retire at the end, you get a nice parcel of land and you get it set up very comfortably. And most of them took that up in Philippi. So a lot of these guys are very Roman when we, see Phil, uh, when we think of Philippi. Roman structures, cultures, uh, just the way they conducted themselves, their society. So Philippi, a Roman colony, important Roman colony, uh, and they stayed there several days. But on the Sabbath day, on the Saturday, they went outside the city gate to the river where they expected to find a place of prayer. So, yeah, people just gathering uh, around. This is, so Rome was also a very religious culture. They had their national gods, which they had temples to, that everybody was compulsory. You had to go and worship those national gods. But people also had their own private gods, their household gods. So everybody typically had a little shrine in their house that they would personally follow as well. But there was the Jews, if you think Old Testament Jews, their God's people, they were sort of scattered around this area. There are not many Jews that we know of compared to other towns uh, in Philippi. But they would gather, usually by the water, to pray. So Paul's going, I'm going to hang out with the Jews, tell them about Jesus. So he goes down there and he sat down, began to speak, found a group of women uh, who'd been gathered there. And one of them, them listening, was a woman of the city of uh, Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, and she was a worshipper of God. Now, if we're talking about identity, if we're talking about how do we know people, how do we give a quick description of who we are, this is it. This is a woman, sort of like, who are you, where you're from, what do you do? It's that sort of question. Uh, where you're from or who you are. Thyatira is a city and the city is in the area of Lydia. So it's actually, we're not really sure, is Lydia her real name given to her at birth or is she called the Lydian? Because she's like, if you went to another country, you might get nicknamed the Aussie. You know, it's that sort of get named, nicknamed after your place. So it's actually funny when we're looking at her, who she is, her identity, what makes her her, we might not even be given her real name, but it's given her identity because in a Roman culture, you are where you're from. That says a lot about you. Uh, she's a Lydian. We'll call her Lydia because uh, that's the way it reads. Um, she's a dealer in purple cloth. What do you do? She's a businesswoman. Actually, dealing in purple cloth was very exclusive kind of business. But she's a businesswoman. And she was a worshipper of God. So this is interesting because we would say a Jew in that day uh, uh, brought up to know the God of the Old Testament. 
they are very familiar with the God of what we would say the Bible up to Jesus, the, the Old Testament. But there were some Gentiles, so you had to be born a Jew into that family, but Gentiles are everyone else. So she's a Roman. She's an outsider, you might say. But she knows a bit about this God, the God of the Bible. And she's, uh, you, might, you wouldn't say a Christian, because they're described as she's a worshipper of God. I'll come here. She might, may well have just added this God to her other gods, because that's what Romans did in the Roman culture. Just because you're a worshipper of God doesn't mean you're, you're a Jew and a part of the family. In fact, being a Jew, uh, being a Gentile, she was kept away from the Jews. Jews never hung out with Gentiles, never went to their house, never ate food with them, often never did business with them. Jews did not like mixing with Gentiles. And she's a Gentile, but a worshipper of this God. There you go. If you want identity of someone, in a couple of sentences, we've packaged her up, put her in a pigeonhole. That's how, that's how she fits in society. In fact, there's one other thing that's implied there, but not mentioned. They would have picked this up in the first century. There's no husband mentioned. And uh, later on, she's mentioned uh, a bit further down the passage. There's no husband there. It's assumed that she's a single woman. <coughs> this makes it even more interesting because women in first century Rome had to. It's the law. You had to sit under the, th the authority of a man. You Do you like that law, women sitting here? You had to be married or you had to sit under the authority of your dad. You had to. It was the law. The only exceptions to that was if you were married, you're a successful businesswoman and your husband died. If you showed you were successful in business, you could stay independent. Or you had three or more children. If you had three or more children and your husband died, uh, then you didn't have to sit under the authority of a man. You just, I don't know, they, yeah, you've proven yourself in their world. They're the only two exceptions. Now, if she hasn't got a husband, she's not under the authority of a dad, it looks like she's proven herself, she's a successful businesswoman. That puts her in a very specific category. I'm sort of getting a real picture of her, who she is. But things are going to be changed for her because that's who she is in that society that's just accepted. Everybody would see her as that. But then something radical happens. He says, so Paul's ex explaining stuff. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. God was at work in her. She listened. She changed. And these words are kind of a bit New Testament jargony. To open her heart and she responded means she started believing in Jesus because Paul's message was all about Jesus. She believed in Jesus. She trusted Jesus. When you believe Jesus, trust in Jesus, you, you give your life to him. So you are no longer Mr. Mrs. Me Independent, but it's actually I'm trusting my life, my future in Jesus. So she's trusting Jesus. And this is the change in her. When she and the members of her household were baptised, like, well, if it's for me, and my whole household, if she's a successful businesswoman, she's probably got people working for her. She would have, uh, in that uh, time in history, slavery was a very big thing. Actually, here's a bit of trivia for you. Um, because the Roman structure was so specific with identity, they wanted to know exactly who you were. If you were important, you wore special robes, even special colours like the purple, if you were important. 
you're a bit of an average sort of person, you wear average clothes. But if you're a slave, this is where, how do we know who the slaves are? So they even talked about introducing across the Roman Empire, slaves must wear a particular uh, item of clothing. So we know who the free men and who the slaves are. They didn't go ahead with it because they thought if the slaves all knew the amount of slaves there were, they would overthrow the Roman Empire because there were so many slaves. So it's not unusual for, for Lydia to have a household, servants, slaves, possibly even kids herself, uh, but she got a household. We all be baptised. Baptised is a symbol of you're no longer an outsider, but an insider. Remember? Gentiles weren't allowed in the temple. They weren't allowed in the synagogues. Gentiles were out. We don't do business with you. We don't go to your house. We don't eat with you. But when you're baptised, you're going, no, you're a part of God's family. So she and her household was baptised. She's being accepted. Accepted into God's family now. She's baptised. And then it says, she invited us to her home. This is the real test of her identity. She sees, she's now a believer in Jesus. She sees, I've been baptised, now I'm accepted. Here's the real test. I'm going to invite Paul and his friends, who are Jews, into my home, and I'm going to invite them for a meal. Come and stay in my house and be with me. Paul and his friends are possibly looking at each other. Are we allowed to do this? Because we've had two centuries of rules saying we don't mix but she's no longer, we shouldn't see her through the lens of Gentile. She's now one of Jesus. So they go to her house and affirms who she is. She's now one of God's children. She's now a sister in Christ. Her identity has changed. She is different. And you see the way that story unfolds. This is who she was before. Let's put her in categories of identity. This is where she's from. This is what she does. This is um, uh, who she is in a religious world. But now she's a child of God. She's one of us. Things have changed. Her identity has changed. Now, this is a, as Paul's uh, introducing people to God, we can see this is the makings of this new church in Philippi who we're going to look at uh, later on. But we've got to think, She's, she's, a t she's going to be one of the key people in leading this church. Now, from there, we meet a slave girl. Again, going to a place of prayer. They met a female slave, which the Spirit, uh, spirit had helped her predict the future. It's a bit of a fortune teller. Now, what's her status? A slave in the Roman Empire, you think categories, first century, is at the bottom of the pecking order. If you're a slave, you're a possession. Right? It's like a car or anything like that. You buy and sell slaves. An owner of a slave could kill a slave if he wasn't happy. He was having a bad day. That he could kill his slave and the police would not even be interested in going to visit. It's up to him. Nobody's interested. There's no value in a slave. But this girl is slightly different. She's got this spirit that possesses her, helps her tell the future, so she's actually worth something because she's making money for the boss. So she's, her value is in that. But she goes around because she can tell the future because of the Spirit. The Spirit's been uh, led her to, to tell everybody, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. It's almost like she knows what's going on 
uh, because of the, through the Spirit, and she's telling everybody. But Paul becomes so annoyed that he turned around and said to her spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Now, as the story unfolds, it's a long story, I haven't got it all, but we see her value change. Now, we don't know uh, if she became a Christian or not at that point, but it's interesting when you look at everybody else in the New Testament, when they have evil spirits cast out, they start following Jesus. They start trusting Jesus, putting their life in Jesus. So there's a fair chance, a good chance at that point, she gave her life to the Lord and become one of God's children. We don't know that for sure. It doesn't tell us. But looking at other people, uh, that's not out of, the, out of the ordinary. But as this happens... Uh, her value in society changes. We do know that the owners got really angry, really angry, because this slave girl, who was worth something in monetary form, she was making money, now she can't, she doesn't have the spirit, she can't tell people's fortunes, so she stopped making money, so she's lost value to them. She's just an ordinary slave. What good is she to us, they say. So they get angry at Paul and Silas and his friends and want to get them, hold them accountable because they basically robbed them of their slave girl. But for her, we might not know if she's become a Christian or not, but we do know Jesus has freed her, freed her from the bondage of that, that spirit. So she gets her life back, particularly in the eyes of God. She's no longer possessed by the spirit. She's, she can be herself. That's what we do know. Jesus did make a difference to her identity, just how much, I don't know. But there's a good chance she'd become a believer. There's a good chance she ended up being a part of this church. Again, her identity changed by Jesus. The third person we're going to see is a jailer because what happens to Paul and Silas is because they get in trouble from these guys because they'd taken away their income-producing slave girl, uh, they get arrested, they get beaten and flogged severely, it says, then put into jail again. I encourage you to read chapter 16. Long passage, great story. They get put in jail after being flogged and beaten, put in the centre of the jail, like this is maximum security in that jail. But what do they do? For Paul and Silas, even for their identity, how embarrassing is it if you got locked up and put into jail, right? But no, they're in jail singing songs to God. They're singing these praise and worship songs. They're praying to God out loud. says so everybody in the jail can hear them doing that. It's like, being in jail is not who I am. In Christ is who I am. I'm going to continue to praise Christ, even in jail, in chains. And what happens that night, massive earthquake comes, the gates fly open, the doors fly open, and their chains fall off, all the prisoners. And as that happens, uh, they have an opportunity to, to escape. And this is where we pick up the story. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors had opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because the prisoners had, because he thought the prisoners had all escaped. Now, we get an insight into his identity. It's a Roman soldier. Roman soldiers take a lot of pride in who they are and their jobs. It gives them status. To be a Roman soldier, you're very proud, very competent, very successful, that is who you are. If you're a failure, if you fail, that's big. Your identity is crushed. Now for him, 
He's got one job, look after the, the people in jail. And now he's failed. They've all escaped. Doesn't matter why, but he's lost the prisoners, he's thinking. What's life worth? Am I going to take the shame of being sacked, probably even flogged in front of his friends, or even killed, because they do that in the first century, even killed because he'd failed? That's not what he wants to do. It's easier for him to take his own life than to be a failure in life at all. His identity was threatened. In fact, stripped away from him in that moment. I may as well end it all, is where he's come to. But then he hears voices. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer called for the lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out. And I says, what must I do to be saved? It's like he's seen something. His identity has been crushed in what's just happened. But Paul and Silas follow this, this Jesus guy. They've been thrown in jail, even flogged. Their identity hasn't been crushed. In fact, they're, praise, they're praising God in jail. Their, the gates fly open. Any of us will go, yay, freedom. I don't like my identity being a, a jailbird and I can get out of that by running away. But no, my identity is not found in whether I'm in jail or not. My identity is found in Christ. I don't have to run away. So they're going, no, no, we're, we're still here. It's like the jailer's saying, actually, I want what you guys have got because what I've got is crushing me. I want what you guys have got because you guys have freedom. You guys have life. You guys are saved in Christ. That's what he's pursuing. Now, it's interesting. I don't think this jailer is that distance to, to many of us because even suicide today is the biggest uh, killer of Aussies between the age of 15 and 44. In fact, uh, statistically, many people in this room would associate with the jail. Oh, I know how he feels about being crushed, about my identity, about being failure. Sometimes it feels easier to just end it myself than to go through all this. But he's seen something different. And he's grabbed it in Jesus. He's seen it through Paul and Silas. He gets them. And see the change that it makes in his life. So he believes. Uh, sorry, I'll pick it up in verse 21, <coughs> 31. Uh, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. So again, he's got a family. He's got servants and slaves as well. He's a wealthy Roman soldier. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. Spoke Jesus to him and all the others in his household. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. He immediately, and he and all his household were baptised. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. See the turnaround in this guy. The turnaround. He believes in Jesus. Uh, he takes them as their word. And that hour of the night, not wasting any time, washed their wounds. In the Roman Empire, first century, men don't wash wounds. You may have a slave that comes, and if you have a visitor, you, the slave will wash their feet, clean them up a little bit. At best, uh, at worst, if you didn't have a slave, the children, because they're the lowest in the pecking order, the children would wash the feet, wash the wounds. Or if they've got no children, the women of the house would do it. Never the men of the house would wash a visitor's wounds or wash their feet. 
And these are just aren't visitors, they're criminals. You wouldn't even let them in the house, let alone wash their wounds. And here's the head of the house, the Roman soldier, higher status of everybody around, washing their wounds. He's a changed man. The categories of his status, the categories of his identity have changed. He's washing their wounds. Gets all of his household baptised. They're no longer outside, they're inside the kingdom, inside, part of the family. He brings them into his house, set a meals before them. They're Gentiles. He's a Roman soldier. He's got a shrine on the wall. Yet Paul and Silas come in and eat with them, have fellowship with them. So they're no longer outsiders. They're part of God's family. And he found joy. This I find really interesting because this will get back to his boss. It has to get back to his boss. You did what? You didn't lose any prisoners. Yay for you. But you let them into your house. You washed prisoners' wounds. You invited them into your house. You had a meal with them. What were you thinking? But the jailer is not afraid of that. In fact, he is filled with joy. His identity is not found in what other people see in him or even the way he viewed himself. Remember, he viewed himself that way as well. When everything was stripped by him, he was worthless. He was a failure. But he didn't even follow that. Now in God's eyes, I am somebody. I am loved. I am accepted. I am valued. So even though with these events, his friends may not like him anymore, but he's filled with joy. Why? Because he'd come to believe in God. Him and his whole household believing in God. His identity has changed. He's not known as the Roman soldier anymore. He's a believer in God. He's changed. And it changes the way he behaves. Now we get a bit of a glimpse at this because after the jail episode, we're still in Philippi, uh, we pick it up at the end of the chapter. Paul and Silas come out of the prison and they went to Lydia's house. We're back at Lydia's house. In fact, all the brothers and sisters were there and they encouraged them, Paul and Silas, and then Paul and Silas left and moved on. Now, in this picture, we don't see, oh, they went to Lydia's house and there was Lydia and her household. There's a slave girl. There was a Roman soldier and his family because they're the old categories. They're the old identity. Now, what do we see them called as? Brothers and sisters. They're in the family of God. That's who you are. Your identity has changed. And what matters most is not how identities, how a society sees you. It's not even in it to an extent how you perceive yourself. It's how God sees you is most important. Now, we get to this end of this chapter. It's a beautiful picture. This is the makeup of the church at Philippi. A uh, businesswoman, possibly a slave girl, a Roman soldier and his family. Brothers and sisters now. And you kind of wish that Paul and Silas riding off into the sunset, happy days. It's going to be easy. This is an awesome church. But we know when we all get together and with all of our diversity, with all our background, it's much, much harder than that, isn't it? We get into Philippians. The, book, the letter that Paul writes to the Philippians is about four or five years later. And he gets to the end of that and he writes something really interesting. It's very honest. He says, I plead with Yodia and with Kids, all you people looking for kids' names, great names, uh, but they're women. <laughs> but he says, I plead with them to be of the same mind in the Lord. 
Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, to help these women. It's almost acknowledging, it is acknowledging, hey, this is not easy, this transition. To take on a new identity, to, to take on Jesus', Jesus identity, to take on Jesus' values, Jesus' priorities, this is going to be really hard. And even then, it's going to be challenging, even for these two women. This is why he gets in. So he's challenged society's ideas of identity, but he even challenges our, our, our ideas of identity. So what does it mean for you, for these people, to be a follower of Jesus, to take on Jesus' identity? He has this great passage in chapter 2. This is a reading we had earlier. So this is a letter written to this young church. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any... Uh, common sharing in the spirit, <clears throat> if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the spirit and of one mind. Now this whole thing pivots on one thing. If you've been united with Christ, it's another way of explaining what it means to believe in Jesus or trust in Jesus, put your faith in Jesus. You are united with Jesus. It's no longer... Jesus is over here, he's this identity, this character, he's me and my identity and my character. And now I can just, if I'm a follower of Jesus, he, I just add him. You know, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I'm a granddad, and I'm a gardener, and I'm, G, I'm a follower of Jesus. He just gets added to the list of who I am. It's not like that. You've been united with Jesus, which means you actually come into his world. He doesn't, he's not a tack on to your world. You actually come into his world. The two become one. In fact, a little less, a bit later in the chapter, he says uh, in, in verse 6, uh, Jesus being very nature God. Then he explains what Jesus did, giving up his life, sacrificing his life for us. And then it comes back to this point. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is, in, that is above every name that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's meant to see Jesus is kind of a big deal. He is big. He's Lord. He is God. He is King. We can't just think. We can just add him to our life. He's just a part of who I am. No, no, Paul says, uses that word going back to that passage you are united with christ you've come into his realm into his world you are one with him and when you are one with him you'll experience these things you'll find the comfort of his love you'll find in common the sharing of the spirit or other versions say the fellowship of the spirit meaning we are one with him through his spirit we find his tenderness we find his compassion now that one with him, we don't just experience the good things of him, but we experience his real identity, his real character at work in our lives because the two become one. He is the big part of my identity. He's not an add-on. And if he's a big part of my identity, if Jesus is my identity, all of a sudden I take on his values and his priorities because my values and my priorities are I want to be important. I want people to think good of me. I want the high status. It's all me, me, me. This is what I want. But if I take on Jesus' identity, Jesus' values, Jesus' priorities, all of a sudden, 
I know I'm valued, I'm a child of God. What God sees is important to me, not what other people see. So therefore my actions can be lesser. That's why it goes on. If you've got Jesus' identity, you actually let go of the other stuff. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, one in mind. Actually, if I'm united with Christ, if he's my identity, how I live out my life with you guys really matters. It changes. I don't have to be top of the pecking order. In fact, he spells it out even further. <clears throat> Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That was my old identity. I wanted those things. But rather in Christ, in humility, value others above yourself. My old identity says, I, I look down on the interests. Uh, sorry, not looking, not looking to your own interests. It means I look down on others. I want to see the best of me. But now in Christ, I have my identity. I found I'm affirmed of who I am. But each of you have the interests of others. I can lift others up because what God thinks of me is more important than what others think of me. I can lift others up so they see God as well. That's my main identity. It's who I am in Christ. Who you are really matters. And you can imagine how radical that first church would have been. Lydia, looking at her old characteristics, Lydia, the businesswoman, meeting in her house, a slave girl rocks up and says, hey, can I be a part of your new church? A Roman soldier and his family and his household rock. A Roman soldier comes and visits her house and he says, I actually want to be a part of this new thing called church So I'm a follower of Jesus too. He rocks up. So all of a sudden there's a household full of people. There's this pecking order. Well, who's going to set out the seats? Who's going to uh, share some stuff? Who's going to do morning tea? Who's going to make the coffee? Not the Roman soldier. He's at the top. Slave girl. Slave girl should put out the seats. If there's not enough seats, slave girl sits on the floor. No, it's not like that. They're brothers and sisters in Christ now because their identity is not in the old world categories. Their identity is in Christ. They're brothers and sisters. The soldier puts out the seats. Lydia helps out in the kitchen. So maybe some of the soldier's family. Like it's, it's mixed in, it's radically different to the world being a follower of Christ and what Christ is saying. Radically different. And it changes their behaviour because they take on the values of Jesus. Now, there's a couple of great things we can take from this. We could go down a whole thing about what that means for us as a church because we are a church with much diversity, many backgrounds. And what does that mean for us to be one and the way we serve each other? We'll have to hold that off for another day because we want to nail down this idea of who you are and your identity. What is the main thing that makes you, you? What do you put first? What shapes the others? See, don't let the world define who you are because the world has a mantra, be who you are. Now, let us give you some categories. And the categories that get the most media attention at least, or get the most social uh, time, is the colour of your skin, your gender or non-gender, your gender identity, your sexual preferences. You've got movements uh, like the Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, the LGBTI, and Pride Month, we're, 
but currently in. Now, they're all real things. I'm not here to bag them out. They're not nothing. And we're not here to say they don't exist. Because I think when you investigate those things, people see their identity. Genuinely, this is who I am. I am a part of the, the culture of the, because of the colour of my skin, or I am the, this person because of my sexual identity or sexual preferences. This is who I am. It's a genuine, if you talk to people, that is who they want people to see them as. They're not nothing. But there is something more important, and that's what is the main thing what, that makes you who they are? Lydia, the slave girl, the soldier, all went through this. Am I who, do I fit the society's categories or does that even matter? Is it what matters most is who God sees I am. What God sees I am is the most important. And when God sees you, he says, are you a follower of Jesus? Are you trusting my son? That's the main thing that God is interested in. The other stuff, the colour of your skin, your gender, your sexual identity, um, all those things are secondary. They're secondary. The main thing is who are you in Jesus? And if the main thing is Jesus, it doesn't stop the other things. I'm still a husband, I'm still a dad, I'm still a granddad. But if Jesus is my identity, if he's the main thing, I want to be a husband that Jesus wants me to be. I want to be a father that Jesus wants me to be. I want to be a pop that Jesus wants me to be. Gee, I, I start being shaped by Jesus' values and it shapes the way I live, the way I act the rest of my life. If Jesus is the main thing, we have security. That is who we are. And like the jailer, it doesn't matter what other people think of me anymore. What God thinks of me matters most. See, who are you in Jesus. What does that mean for you to believe in him, to trust in him, to be united with him? Is it your primary thing? When God sees you, the first thing he sees, ah, you trust my son, you believe in him. Or is he seeing you caught up with all the secondary things? Is that how we might describe ourselves? When you take on Jesus' priorities and values, it will be a challenge. We will struggle. I still struggle with my identity in Christ and trying to live that out. Philippians 2 reminds us, though, being united with Christ does change things. It's radical, radically different to this world. Now, I invite you to consider that question. If you were to write just a short 200 words, how would I introduce myself? How would you write Jesus' significance in your life? Or is it other things that you would put first? And how would God see that? Let me pray for us. Let me pray for us that we listen to God and not have our ear always to what the world is telling us. Let's pray. Dear Father God, just thank you for your great love for us. Those things that we often consider make up our identity, whether they've been hurts, whether they've been struggles, scars and bruises, fear of failure or striving to be successful. Lord, we're sorry that Sometimes we make those things not just part of our journey, but we make them our main thing. We make them our identity. Lord, thank you for reaching into our world through Jesus. Thank you that he, come, 
He come and took the pain and suffering. He took the scars. He took the beatings. He took the humiliation so that we might have life, true life. Lord, help us to work out each of us in our own journeys. What does that mean to make Jesus the centre of my life, that he is my identity? What does it do to all the minor things going on? Lord, support us. Use your spirit to shape us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.